afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the fourth of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and are free and open to the public. Please help spread the word. We can't have enough information and analysis at this time. This disaster is not going away anytime soon. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I'll serve as the host for these discussions. The link to this discussion is the same every day. So if you found us through the Zoom link, then you'll find us here every day, every weekday uh, at that same link at five o'clock. Also, please send me suggestions for guests and for topics, and feel free to suggest yourself as a guest. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for COVID calls or search for my name, Scott Knowles. You'll find them either way. And I'm gonna make this link available via my Twitter handle at US of Disaster as soon as the calls are over every day. Tomorrow, I'm gonna to speak with Samantha Montano, who's a professor of emergency management and disaster science at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And also on the COVID call will be Patrick Roberts of the Center for Public Administration and Policy at Virginia Tech and he's the author of Disasters in the American State. Samantha and Patrick are two of our leading experts on the history and politics of emergency management, FEMA, and disasters in historical context. And believe me, you won't wanna miss this conversation. Today, I am really glad to talk with Dr. Esther Chernak. Esther is a professor in the Department of Environmental Health at the Drexel University School of Public Health. She has a position in the Drexel University College of Medicine. She's the director of the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication at Drexel. Prior to joining the Drexel faculty in 2010, Dr. Chernak worked at the Philadelphia Department of Public Health for over 25 years, serving in a variety of positions. She oversaw communicable disease surveillance for the city, emergency preparedness initiatives such as pandemic planning, information sharing with clinical and public health partners, and public information and warning. Esther, thank you so much for making time to talk with all of us here today. Happy to be here. And I want to remind everyone that I'll have questions and we're going to have an open conversation. We have many topics to get to. And please also put your questions in the chat and we'll get to those questions as we go through the conversation. So Esther, you were telling me, I just want to jump right in. You were telling me that you're actually working right now on a team setting up a drive-through testing center in South Philadelphia. Why don't we start by you telling us about that initiative? Yeah, so um, in addition to my work at Drexel, I also have a, I see patients a couple of days a week at the health department uh, primary care safety net clinic network and um, where I do HIV and infectious disease care. And I think um, as the health department is ramping up its response to the COVID-19 outbreak, they are pulling, the commissioner's office is sort of pulling from across the department to uh, aid in the response to the to this outbreak. And one of the initiatives that the health department is conducting, like health departments across the country, is trying to scale up access to diagnostic testing for SARS-CoV-2, the, the viral cause of COVID-19. Um, so the health department has done a few things. There's a couple of walk-in test sites, but there's also the health systems across Philadelphia has, have expanded access to COVID-19 testing, although most of those test sites tend to be restricted to their own patients. Um, and in the last week, the federal government has made an effort to try to expand testing, and they've uh, provided major metropolitan areas and other parts of the country that are quote-unquote hotspots or hit by this virus uh, with 
resources to stand up what they're calling high throughput uh, drive-through test sites where people can come with varying criteria uh, for COVID-19 testing. And the suggested federal criteria are um, I think symptomatic folks over 65, healthcare workers and first responders, our commissioner has expanded those to include uh, symptomatic people 50 and over and, uh, and older. Um, but we are going to be going live with this test site tomorrow morning as a quote unquote soft launch and then probably more fully operational Saturday morning. And the goal is to try to test potentially up to 2,500 people, which is how many test kits we have over a week, perhaps, perhaps less perhaps less time than that. And so that's happening at a major stadium complex in South Philadelphia uh, that's convenient to a number of highway systems, et cetera. 2,500 tests in a week. How would that compare to the overall amount of testing that's been done in Philadelphia to now? Do you know? Oh, I don't know what the numbers are. 2,500 is, is probably low. I mean, I think there are many, many more tests done each week. I mean, just the, the current health system um, test sites are doing about 800 a day, between 800 and 1,000 a day, just of the patients that come through there. And there's probably a few hundred more. I, I think we may do 500 a day. We may end up, you know, doing, doing, you know, 2,500 in three days. I have no idea how many people will come through. Much of it will depend on the public information and the messaging. Um, but this site will be specifically um, open to people who don't have insurance. Um, you know, there will be folks who, you know, who I think will be steered to this site and might not necessarily be affiliated with a healthcare system. Um, unlike the other test sites, which require a physician's order, people basically are going to be self-referring based on the criteria we share publicly. Oh, I guess I, I wasn't really aware of that. So most of the people who've been tested up to now are doing that only because they, they've had a physician's order and then they're testing positive or they're not admitted That's to the right. hospital without a, a test or people may have been admitted to the hospital and then have the test. Is that, is that I think people are tested in a variety of clinical settings. Some of them are tested as outpatients. Many people are tested as outpatients through their primary care office or by referral from a primary care. And many people are tested um, you know, in hospital situations. But the majority of, of the clinical tests for COVID-19 are like other diagnostic tests that we do in medicine. They're ordered by a doctor or a provider or professional that has the authority to order a diagnostic test. Well, I want to ask you the question that's been, has come up in every one of these calls this week, which is help us understand the situation around the testing. Uh, yeah. why, does it, why does it matter? Have we been as slow as the media has reported? Um, bring us a little bit into your thinking about this whole testing situation. So um, it's a good question, and it's been the subject of a lot of um, conversations I've had in my health department role and my academic role and public conversations. So um, testing is really key to understanding uh, the magnitude of cases and the burden of disease in our population. It's, it's the linchpin of surveillance. And so um, if we don't test, we have no idea how many cases we have. And so um, we're kind of behind the eight ball if we don't know how many cases we have. But I, the, one of the main issues around testing from a public health management perspective is that um, the control measures for this disease rely on isolating people who have the virus and then using the information to identify their closest contacts and making sure those folks are confined or quarantined so that they don't spread the virus. And so a diagnostic test has very, is really the driver for those critical public health management activities. And then if you look at what was successful in China and in other Asian countries that have successfully controlled this, um, 
you know, the mainstay of what they're doing, you know, it's not just, you know, wide scale, you know, shutdown of society, but it's this really targeted, identify cases, isolate them, identify their contacts, and, con and in quarantine or confine them. And that's really how you limit spread in a very targeted and effective way. The social distancing stuff that we're seeing, um, you know, where we're shutting down stores and this and that, um, has certainly has an impact, um, but is really a layer on top of that targeted stuff. And by not having access to diagnostic testing in this country, we're blind. We don't have any visibility on the magnitude of the disease burden here in the country. Um, and we're blind with respect to really invoking targeted public health management. I appreciate you explaining it so clearly. And I'm going to ask you another sort of elementary question as a historian and not a public health expert. When ideally should the testing have begun in this instance? How far so behind are we? Oh, it's a tough question. Um, and it's easy to be judgmental. Um, and I think the, the story of our, of our testing program is a complicated one in this country. Um, you know, in other epidemics of infectious diseases, um, you know, the, the pattern has been that the, you know, these are emerging threats. There are no diagnostic tests for them when they're first identified or recognized. And uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has, you know, been remarkable in terms of their ability to use molecular diagnostics to, you know, develop uh, PCR or polymerase chain reaction technology to do um, pathogen identification. And in the other kinds of infectious disease events that we've had, specifically, you know, SARS-CoV-1 in 2003, and, you know, after that, Ebola and Zika and H1N1 influenza, um, CDC has done a great job developing a test and then quickly, you know, assuring its accuracy and distributing it to state public health labs um, uh, so that there would be regional and state-based capacity. And I think two things happened that were problematic in this outbreak. One was that CDC had trouble with the asset they made, that they came up with. They made a decision, and I don't have inside details here, but they made a decision not to use a WHO um, developed assay and assays that had been tried in uh, China and other Asian countries. They came up with their own assay, and that didn't work when it was distributed to state health departments. So that lent, uh, we, that you know created a delay. But the other challenge was that I think uh, we. As a, as a country, I think we didn't recognize just how quickly this was going to spread and how critical widespread access to testing was with respect to both defining the epidemic and initiating and implementing the control measures that are so critical to containment, which is really, you know, old fashioned isolation and quarantine. Mm -hmm. um, when should we have done this? Hard to know. I mean, one of the things I think the Chinese have, were truly heroic about was, you know, was in, in late December, early January, when they identified this novel pathogen, this novel coronavirus, they quickly um, sequenced the virus and published the genome. And, you know, that made the genome information available so that people could develop a diagnostic test. And we, we were kind of, uh, I don't want to say asleep at the switch, but we didn't take advantage of that moment to quickly, you know, develop a test, or maybe we did, and, and I just don't know the details, but I think, you know, we certainly had two months before the virus arrived at our shores here to really um, perfect and scale up a diagnostic test. And I think one of the things that I think also happened is that we were slow to recognize risk. We were over-focused on Asian countries, and we didn't really focus on um, how the virus was clearly gonna spread globally, 
and how um, you know we had so we had these very narrow testing criteria that really unfortunately I think allowed us to miss a number of the early cases, particularly cases that were travel associated, but not so much Asian countries, but maybe European countries and Middle Eastern countries where the virus had spread um, and then were becoming, you know, uh, were, were basically being imported to our country. Um, so I think we missed, we probably missed a good six weeks of um, of testing and it, so it was more than just having access to test. I think it was really rethinking what we should be doing with respect to using testing as a as a public health management tool. If that answers your question. No, it's uh, thank you very much for taking it at, at that pace for me too. And and I want to ask a follow up. If we had been more aggressive, then if I understood you correctly earlier, then the kind of social distancing, school closure, shelter in place orders. Are you saying we wouldn't be facing that right now as a sort of a national, I mean, I, my, I don't know of any, any moment in American history when a national school closure, basically, which is what we almost have right now, yeah. is in effect. I agree with you. We could have avoided that? Is that what you're telling me? I, I don't know that we could have avoided that. If you look at what was successful in China and in Singapore and in Korea, they were layered interventions. And I think that it look, I don't know if those things were done nationally, but certainly in the Hubei province, for example, in China, um, they did a combination of things that seemed to be successful. It was the, you know, case identification, the targeted contact tracing, the targeted quarantine of those contacts. Um, and then on top of that, there were the layers of just, you know, social distancing recommendations that allowed for sort of a catch up in some respects, they allow, you know, if you miss those cases yeah. um, and probably, you know, did prevent that person to person transmission for unrecognized cases. And one of the challenges with this virus is that, in fact, there's a wide spectrum of illness and it appears that there's a spectrum that's very mild. And um, there's also a spectrum of disease prior to the onset of symptoms where people are highly contagious. We're learning this now. Mm. Um, and so, you know, Testing alone is, is hard, you know, if you're just going to test symptomatic people, which is why those additional social distancing things are important in terms of the equation. So could we have avoided them? I don't think so. But I think what's happening in many countries now or many, in many cities and states now is that there are case numbers that we all believe are too low. And we're invoking these widespread societal shutdowns because we don't know what we don't know. And you're hearing things like, assume you have the virus, act like you have the virus, um, right. you know, because we don't really know what we don't know. And I think it's challenging with emerging pathogens. We don't know how they behave. And, you know, this is an epidemic that is maybe three months old, really. Um, and But I think what we can do is, is learn from the hard-learned educational program that China and Singapore and Korea have gone through. I mean, they're, they have done a remarkable job responding to and containing this epidemic in their own borders and I think certainly the Korean experience is so instructive they were able to really ramp up testing and use that to a really understand their case counts and be um, you know focus disease control measures in ways that I don't say weren't disruptive to society but I think right now we're having these large-scale draconian measures as you say on a national scale and part of that is because we don't know what we don't know right I want to follow up on that because if I understand what's happening then, because the news media coverage has been, in general, it's hard to get a test. And so many people are, are not, right, and yet you're saying it is, it is um, particularly if you haven't had a doctor's uh, prescription order to, to do so, um, then does that mean 
when the worst of this is over, we will actually never have a good sense of how many people had COVID-19 in the United States? So let me just make a couple comments about the testing access and, and then answer your second question. Um, but in terms of, it's hard to get a test, not just because you need a doctor's note or doctor's referral. Um, viral diagnostic testing is not something that's done universally or uniformly in doctor's offices. It's a pretty common test in the pediatric world because kids get viral respiratory infections all the time and those docs are pretty comfortable collecting those tests. I think in adult medicine, we're just 75% of our population and the lion's share of COVID-19 cases, they don't do a lot of that diagnostic testing. So there's a lot of docs that are just not comfortable. The other huge challenge we're facing is a limit of supply with respect to viral diagnostics. The actual swab itself and the viral transport media is in very short supply. And I think you're gonna be hearing a lot about that in the next few days, certainly by next week. That's gonna be a national crisis. We don't have enough reagents. We don't have enough of the actual supplies. Um, so that's one of the reasons testing has been limited. But when you ask, are we not gonna know exactly what the case count is? Absolutely, we're not gonna know. I mean, we have, there are going to be so many cases that are on the milder spectrum of disease that don't present for medical attention, that don't receive diagnostic tests. And there'll be lots and lots of studies of mathematical modeling that allow us to use the cases that were identified, were confirmed, were medically attended to come up with a way to extrapolate what we think the true case burden was. Okay, so let me ask you a little bit about where we're headed. What are the main indicators that you're looking at and considering as you think about where we're gonna be, let's just say Philadelphia, but maybe nationally, if you're willing to talk about it, a week from now, two weeks, what are you looking at? And, and some of the people on this call are public health experts and physicians, and many of us are not. So take that into account in your answer, but I think we're all interested to know like what kind of data points are you looking at when you think about what's coming around the corner? Yeah, so I mean, I, you know, maybe there'll be time for discussion here, but I think, most of the curves that are publicly shared in, in, um, you know, in terms of mathematical modeling and in terms of prediction, predictors that are based on you know, where other countries were at these, this number of cases are terrifying. And they really are, represent almost an exponential growth in cases. And I think that's, that's kind of where we're headed. I mean, you'll hear the, you know, a lot of people saying we're maybe two weeks behind Italy. Um, so, and, and maybe that's where we are. I think the things that we're looking for are, um, you know, um, healthcare service utilization in many respects. I think we're all looking to see how hospitals, uh, you know, bear up under the strain of having to care for people with uh, COVID-19, in particular uh, intensive care unit resources. I think that's our biggest concern. I think that's gonna be our a big barometer um, in the absence of a really widely available diagnostic test. Is our big barometer is gonna be how many sick people are, are, are seeking medical care. Um, and you know, New York City, for example, has been monitoring um, influenza-like illness through their syndromic surveillance system, and they've had they had an uptick about ten days ago that was extremely worrisome, um, and probably predicted where we are now, where they are now, um, with respect to health service utilization and, and case burden. So that's unfortunately is what I'm looking for. I mean, what I would love to see now that you know many cities in the country, and the Philly metro area is among them. Um, is that you know the so-called flattening of the curve that we've been reading a lot about in the press, right. which is to say, you know, maybe we won't see that you know dramatic increase in in cases, um, whether it's numbers of cases, whether it's numbers of ER visits or hospitalizations or number of beds filled with COVID-19 patients or ICU patients with COVID-19. I would hopefully look for some dampening of that. 
And I think we have no idea what's going to happen. I think we're hopeful that this national school closure, and I think it's really implemented differently across the country. I think every city's kind of a little different in the way they're doing this in terms of what's open and closed and what's permitted and what's not. But I think we'll look at local and state levels to see whether those efforts make a difference in case numbers. So you're going to be looking at information that's available to public health experts around hospital beds, ICU admissions, influenza-like illnesses reported in the absence of these other kind of numbers. You, have, you do have a sort of a, a array of other information in the system that you can look at to try to draw a picture in the absence. I think so. I mean, I think I like to have tests. I'm an ID physician. I like diagnostic tests. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would test everyone for everything if I had my druthers um, mm -hmm. all the time. Um, but we're not going to have that, the benefit of those data. That's not, so, not going to happen. Yeah. And, but I think, you know, people, symptoms are not going to lie. People are going to get sick and a good percentage of those people are going to be really sick and they're going to end up in healthcare settings, in particular hospitals. And, and that's everyone's fear. And that's what I guess I'm looking to see and, and hopefully looking to see that maybe we can prevent or mitigate. I want to go back. I'm going to pick up one of the questions I have here from Michael and then also wrap it into a question I had. Michael asks, Taiwan has a plan. South Korea has a plan. Does the United States have a plan? And I want to combine that question with something you said earlier in which you talked about the way the CDC has behaved in terms of strategy, let's say with 2003, with SARS or with um, H1N1, same agency, um, one, 2003 is under a Republican administration, 2009 is under a Democratic administration. What's the, why has CDC behaved differently in 2020 than it would have in those other moments? And if you can connect that to this issue, this broader issue of how other countries are approaching this, maybe let's take that on. So that's a complicated question, I think. And I'm certainly not privy to what's happening at the federal level with respect to the dynamics of uh, decision makers and, and the way the federal government has organized the response to this pandemic. And, um, and so, there, so there's certainly a difference in the way I think that President Obama dealt with, dealt with H1N1 um, um, and even Zika compared to the way um, this administration has dealt with COVID-19. I think uh, it's not clear to me that there's a plan or that there's even crisis management in place in terms of a clear delineation of all the different dimensions of the crisis that needs to be that need to be addressed. Everything from disease management, diagnostics, healthcare utilization, and supporting healthcare facilities, uh, supply chain stuff, business continuity. I mean, I don't. I'm not seeing a coherent strategy across the board with respect to crisis management. Um, and in terms of CDC specific planner role. I'm not sure what's happening there. I mean, I think we spoke, I spoke earlier about the testing thing and that's just one specific issue. And I think honestly, we had the technology failure with respect to the development of the assay, but we had, I think in some respects, a more significant failure, which is the failure to envision, understand, imagine just the magnitude of this. And to be fair, um, what we're about, to, what we're experiencing now with COVID-19 is nothing like anything we've ever experienced before. I mean, I've been doing this for uh, since 1999, and um, in terms of the world of disaster planning, and this was always the scenario that people talked about. You know, the big one that we should be planning for. And to be candid, um, no one really thought. And so many people in, in, in many, you know, elected officials and other government spheres never really thought this would happen. I remember doing a tabletop exercise with the mayor of Philadelphia about 15 years ago um, 
with a, with a scenario just like this. And it was clear to me, he thought it was too far fetched to take seriously. You know, he obliged us, <laughs> you know, we went through the session and then uh -huh. it ended, but it was clear to me that he just didn't take this seriously. And, and remarkably here we are in this, you know, in this place where I think so many people just never thought we'd ever see. I mean, there are people who live and breathe this stuff. Maybe a lot of folks on this, on this meeting who, who, you know, knew that this was always possible. Um, so to be fair, it, it's hard to judge CDC because I really think the, the, just the dynamics of this epidemic, the, you know, the, the demands that we're going to have to face across in every sphere of, um, of policy are not really comparable to other, um, to other epidemics. Let me pick up a question here from Yonsil Kang. She says, I'm curious about the current testing strategy. Um, this is if, if, back to your point you're just discussing. My understanding from the White House press briefings is that, is that testing resources are going to be targeted to regions with larger numbers of identified cases. Does that seem realistic to you at this point? It's catch up. And uh, my experience, I don't think there's a lot of testing resources. I mean, I think we'll get more. We'll see some improvements in the supply chain with respect to developing viral transport media, which is running out. Um, but I think at some point it won't be practical. I mean, I, I don't think we'll ever be able to do what South Korea did in terms of, you know, incredibly aggressive testing. I don't see that happening. I think it'll get better. It'll be more accessible. I suspect we probably do at least a thousand, if not 1500 tests a day in Philly. I'm, I'm making, I'm guessing that's the number just based on hospitalized patients and these various test sites that are ramping up and we'll probably double that number pretty soon maybe triple it is that going to keep up with the actual number of people who, who could be tested i don't know um, and i don't know that we'll ever have the kind of testing capacity that we need to do what south korea has done which is that you know test pretty much everybody um, and eventually once once you get through the symptomatic people you're testing the marginally or asymptomatic people and then you can still maintain that targeted case management approach i don't know that we'll ever get there i think you know you look at what's happening in new york now and and they're starting to pull back on testing um, they're just, you know, basically saying if you have symptoms, we know there's so much um, incident disease in the community, assume you have it and here's what you should do if you're not critically ill, you know, stay home, you know, try to prevent transmission, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what our testing strategy is now. I know it's to increase it. I know it's to expand it. Um, maybe it's to catch up. Um, but I don't know that we have a really well conceived strategy um, or even um, technical capacity to do what some other countries have done. So Gonzalo uh, Basagalupe, who's going to be one of our guests actually next week, and he's going to talk with us about the situation in Chile. He's asking, do we have trends that distinguish different states and regions? And just to pick up on that, I mean, as we see the response yes. now in the absence of strong federal leadership, the response now is following to states, falling to states and municipalities. What trends are you seeing there? And are you worried at all that, you know, sort of traditional patterns of health disparities are going to play out the way they have, the way they normally do across states? And yeah. So I would say there's, so that's a great question. And I would, I, and in some ways it's multiple questions. So yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, think, I keep asking you these 10 part questions. So no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. So in terms of state to state differences, they will be significant. Um, and some of that, you know, is the accident of which states had out, had transmission first. So obviously this played out in Seattle, Washington, uh, several weeks ago in ways that um, taught us something 
about what we need to do in other parts of the country to try to contain it. But what happened in Seattle and even parts of California was you had, you know, chains of transmission in the community that were clearly not recognized. And a lot of that had to do with our failure to recognize risk. And, you know, we had, there was, you know, lots of, lots of, I think, public information around this failure to test people who should have been tested. And before you know it, you have large scale increases of disease in community and then introductions into high risk situations like nursing homes, et cetera. And you're in the catch up game. You know, which is which is kind of what happened in China and happened in um, in Japan and other parts of the country. And in some places, catch up, you know, was easier to accomplish than others. And I think what we're seeing now is big differences in the way different governors are reacting to disease burdens or perceived risk in their countries. I mean, Mario, um, um, uh, Governor Cuomo has become mm -hmm. very aggressive. Mario's son, <laughs> very aggressive in New York State. Um, but I think he is very much in a reactive mode now. I think the case numbers in New York State and New York City are, are, are very, very high. Um, and, you know, then you look at what's happening in Florida, where we, we have some cases, um, probably not a, not a well, not a well described outbreak there and a fairly fluid um, um, you know, um, approach to social distancing in Pennsylvania, where we are, um, you know, we have pockets of cases in parts of our state, the densely populated parts of our state. Um, and I think pretty, pretty aggressive or, or, you know, government officials or folks who are trying to be aggressive in terms of social distancing and all of that, again, still hampered by a lack of diagnostic testing. But I think we're going to see a lot of state to state differences. Um, and it's in, and in part of that is because we haven't had strong federal leadership in terms of what to do. And part of it is because the epidemic probably is going to be different and play out different in different states. And maybe that'll be a function of the accident of disease introduction. But at some point, it's not going to matter because this this agent is so infectious, it's so transmissible, everybody's going to be affected it's just a matter of time. And the differences will probably be a result of, um, you know, our, our control measures and how well those are implemented. In terms of health disparities, you know, it's my view, there might be state to state disparities, but I think the bigger disparities have a lot to do with um, socioeconomic disparities in health and health insurance and all of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think bad epidemics tend to shine a spotlight on those health disparities. And I, I, I'm an HIV doc um, as my side gig. And, um, you know, I started taking care of people with HIV in the late 80s. And, you know, if you, you know, very, that the whole HIV epidemic very much exposed all the flaws, all the failures in our healthcare system. And a lot of those related to health insurance issues and the lack thereof and a lack of, you know, broad coverage. And what we ended up doing was creating the Ryan White Care Act, which kind of plugged in some, you know, filled in some holes, but didn't really fix the system. And here we are today. Right. And, um, you know, we have a much more urgent, less of a slow epidemic, um, but, you know, we have a much more urgent situation. And I think there's going to be huge disparities in terms of who gets testing. I mean, it's clear to me if you're a professional basketball player or a celebrity, no problem with testing um, and no problem with care. But there'll be lots of folks who will not access care sites or not seek care who are sick because they have no insurance um, and that's where I think we'll see big disparities and we'll see social and ethnic, um, you know, uh, minor ethnic minorities, racial minorities and folks who have lack access to health insurance, I think, suffer terribly from this. I, this is a question I asked Sarah DeYoung yesterday and we had a good discussion about it when because of what you were just talking about. Then do you have any confidence that, let's say, undocumented immigrants or people who are homeless, are they going to access the health system 
in this instance, or is it just going to be like a, a normal day without access to medical services for them? It's hard to know. I mean, I think the, the fear is that they won't. Um, I, I think people with mild illness will absolutely not. People with moderate symptoms probably won't. There's real fear of, I think, I mean, the, the safety net clinic network that I work in um, takes care of a lot of folks who are not documented. And we've seen a big reluctance to present for care um, because of concern about immigration status and that kind of thing. People who are really, really sick will, will probably end up going to the doctor, um, but it's hard to know. Their families will take them to the doctor when, when you know, right. out of desperation. Um, right. And, and that, that'll be a shame because often, you know, once in this disease, you know, I think once ARDS is established and people are in respiratory failure, I think um, we support them. But there's, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity for reversal. And, you know, it, we don't know a lot about what's going to make a difference therapeutically here, but it may be that earlier intervention respiratory support helps. We don't know. Certainly people who present late in care are not going to have the opportunity to participate in some of the, you know, compassionate use kinds of, you know, um, access to medications or trials. I want to pick up on your depth of knowledge as a person working in a in a big city public health department. So, what is a day in the life there like right now? I mean, I've been in emergency management departments where they show you the big board and there's all the seats for everybody, you know, representing different agencies, and it's a constant flow of people in and out. Um, what help us, you know, bring us inside a little bit? What's it like in there right now? So, I mean, I can tell you what's in Philly's health department and every health department is different. And, you know, the one thing I would say across the board, for the most part, you know, public health has suffered terribly in the last two decades. I mean, they're just, we just don't have the staff in, you know, in all, in all the various divisions, programs that we need to really do this right, you know. Um, but I think people are working 15 plus hour days and they're kind of, there are groups of folks working on surveillance. Um, tracking diseases. There's works of, groups of folks trying to work um, on expanding access to testing, working closely with the healthcare system. There's groups of folks um, who every day, like I know in, in, the Commissioner of Health in Philadelphia has a couple of daily calls um, with the healthcare community asking about their surge issues, whether they have supply challenges, personal protective equipment and access to that is probably gonna be the next crisis to come. Um, and so, you know, there's a group of folks working on that. There's a group of folks working on um, public information and risk communication. Um, and I would imagine in many places there's a daily huddle or a health emergency ops group or program or system um, that, you know, is doing, taking sort of daily stock. One of the big things that's happened in Philly, in Philly's health department is that uh, the health department has stand up a, an internal call center just for physicians to guide uh, clinical questions and help, you know, support testing and also get a handle on, on healthcare surge demands. There's a lot of work across the city government agencies to make sure that all the city government agencies are working together to coordinate and support the response. So the city's emergency ops center is open. Um, 
and the Office of Emergency Management is supporting the health department. They're a huge player in the freestanding test site that we're going to open up tomorrow. Um, but they're also making sure that the resources of, you know, the city's facilities department and fleet management department and all the other and risk management are sort of, you know, you know, integrated into the city's response. But the days are long for folks. And, and the city of Philadelphia is a big city, relatively well resourced health department. I think in smaller communities where there's three people, four people, um, it is really challenging. On my way in this morning, I heard a, a newscast um, you, you know that Delaware County, which is um, to our south, is a county of 500,000 people, um, large, a large county in the, in the state of Pennsylvania and also the country that doesn't have a health department. And uh, they decided this morning to enter into a memorandum of understanding with Chester County, which is another suburban county next to it, uh, with, which has a health department to help them manage this outbreak because they felt like in the absence of a health department, they just didn't know enough about their own cases and they weren't mm. able to implement public health control measures and even do things like risk communication. So um, and I think it really varies across, across the, you know, public health agencies across the country because capacity is, is so different. But at the end of the day, it's limited. You know, we had this walkthrough today um, at the site, at the test site, and we were trying to schedule it. And what was clear to me was we were the rate limiting step, not, not just because we were so busy, but because we had so few people to go to the test site compared to all the other agencies who, you know, were deep in, you know, in I folks see. they could send. Well, I want to ask about fatigue. I mean, I, it's become a, something we see on Twitter a lot. Somebody will post and they'll say, um, you know, I have a loved one who's an ER doc or, or their health official, whatever it may be, and they're actually, they're having to do home quarantine, um, you know, so that they can go do their job. They have to distance themselves within their own homes from their families. I mean, how long is, is stress like this sustainable for people within the health system? That's a great question. I, I don't think there's an answer. You know, I think the one thing about the, the, med, the healthcare professions is that they're so elastic, right? We, we, you know, they, they just do what's asked of them. Um, and, you know, you read, you read, you know, accounts from, you know, from China and you read accounts from Italy, you know, some of the two hardest hit countries in this global pandemic. And, um, it's it's extraordinary what those folks are doing. I mean, they're they're dealing with incredibly high rates of healthcare worker infection. They're dealing with the stress of taking care of their communities um, and you know making these horrific triage decisions around access to care and access to respiratory support. I have no idea how long that's sustainable for. I think people will do it for as long as they can, but um, the, the mental stress of you know, is so compounded by, you know, having to make those tough decisions, having to work incredibly long hours, uh, being concerned about your own health, getting sick yourself, being concerned about your loved one's health, not wanting to go home. Um, you know, I don't think we've done this before. Um, SARS-CoV-1, the SARS outbreak in 2003, might have been the closest thing to this in some respects, um, at least in the pockets where there are, you know, large numbers of cases like Toronto, Canada, mm -hmm. um, and in China. But but this is unlike anything we've experienced before. One of the really frightening things about Italy, I think, is obviously, you know, the numbers of cases, not just in older people, but younger people, and the rising case fatality rates. If you look at those numbers, they're like 5%. It's mm -hmm. way higher than China, way higher than Korea. And, and, and it's not just that they're, it may be that they're not counting the cases sufficiently so the denominator is distorted, but I think it's more that um, the quality of care has, you know, declines when resources are so depleted. 
So this actually taps on a question that um, came in through the chat, which is that Germany seems to be reporting case fatality rate of about 0.3%. How do we mm -hmm. understand these differentials across these different countries? And something you just said to me made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, which is that the case fatality rate goes up as the medical system gets more stressed. Oh, yeah. So how do we... That's we, that's the reason to flatten the curve. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, in you know we, in in the construct of pandemic influenza planning, the goal was to flatten the curve of of the first wave, the peak of the first wave, um, in part to buy time to create the vaccine that you knew we could eventually produce for wave two and limit that. Here, I think we're not as optimistic about the likelihood of there being a vaccine, but the, another reason to flatten the curve is to preserve the capacity of the healthcare system yeah. um, and our ability to take care of patients. In terms of the, the calculations of case fatality rates, they're all over them. They're all over the place. Right. And, um, you know, there's so many variables, variables with respect to both the numerator and the denominator, right? Um, I think, you know, in, in China and some other countries, um, you know, it was around 2%, and most people thought that was probably, you know, what it was. It's obviously different if you calculate it for different age groups, much higher in older people. Um, in Korea, it's much lower. I'm not completely sure why. When I, when I first read those numbers, I thought it was because they were so aggressive in just ascertaining cases that the denominator was probably um, a more true picture of the total mm -hmm. number of cases and there were just more mild, mild infections. So I'm not sure I know, I can't explain what's happening in Germany. I, mm -hmm. I'm just not sure what's going on there. Let me get to a question here from our colleague, uh, Amy Slayton. She says, do you see your professional or expert networks compensating for the absence of federal leadership? So we're gonna circle back to some of what we were talking about more towards the beginning. She says that is, if we were there, would we see folks creating conduits across organizations or localities sharing best practices, improvisation, yeah. I think is how we would describe it. Are you seeing that? Yeah, totally. I mean, one thing I would say about CDC, to be fair, I think one place CDC has been really great is in providing clinical and technical guidance, particularly for different types of community sectors. I think they're doing a great job. I think their website is great. I think they came out with guidance for higher education, for healthcare workers, for testing and this and that. And um, well, I think there's some of their testing criteria is too narrow and I think their assessment of risk was too narrow. The, the branch that's, that's providing infection prevention recommendations and guidance for community-based institutions and all that is extremely helpful. Um, I think that um, in terms of professional networks, I think you know, within, within public health, it's always, it's such a, you know, collegial environment in many respects. People are always sharing things. Um, and so there's a lot of sharing across public health departments in terms of surveillance strategies, testing strategies, uh, public health management and containment guidance. There's a lot of sharing from across health departments. That's extremely helpful. I think the medical community has also been similarly open. Um, I subscribe to the Infectious Disease Society of America listservs, and I've, there's been some really useful stuff from Seattle, King County, and from the University of Washington um, around um, everything from their own um, clinical protocols to you know sharing information that they shared that they use publicly around risk containment and how to collect a nasopharyngeal swab and all of that. So uh, there's a lot of sharing information. I also think. Social media has been incredible in this. Um, I mean, I, I'm on Twitter. Helpful or not helpful? 
Yeah. Oh, very, well, from my perspective, and I, and I, I'm, you know, I, I follow, I think both, but from my perspective, you know, I, I'm on these medical Twitter groups, these ID Twitter groups, and the kind of information that's being shared, the second it's ready for prime time is incredible. I mean, mm. the virologists up in, in uh, at University of Washington, the Fred Hutchinson Center, have been quick to share, you know, molecular epidemiologic analyses, um, lots of information um, from um, pretty legit science reporters like Helen Branswell at STAD and places like Vox, um, and lots of people, lots of physicians. Um, you know, and, and, you know, medical outlets sharing information and, you know, about to be published data. So there's a lot of really great information at the fingertips. I know that in the general public, there's a lot of misinformation that is promulgated as well. I don't have any wisdom about how to balance that, but I think both are true. I think there's a lot of great information that's out there and there's a lot of bad information that's out there. Well, a lot of that has to do with how well we curate our social media and I yes. will be following up with you. Maybe you would be willing to share with me and I can pass along some of the um, people you're following on Twitter closely to get this sure. kind of information. Um, because we have a community of disaster researchers across the board who are tuned in here today and be listening to this podcast and they, you know, for each one of them, they have people that rely upon their sort of expert judgment. So I think we can hopefully disseminate some of that information. I wanted to. Um, we have about 15 minutes left. And again, I want to go back to your time um, in the, in the department of public health. And um, you mentioned something earlier about, you know, 20 rough years in public health for the last, last 20 years. The first time I met you, I was interviewing you to, to ask you um, in fairness was a pretty loaded question, which is what do you think about the impact of September 11 on public health? And we know after September 11 that anything with the word terrorism got funded. And I know public health departments had to get good at framing some of their resource asks around terrorism. And I think that was our discussion that day. We have a different vantage point today, but can you put this in some longer perspective for us? I mean, is this a degradation of capacity we've really seen over, over 20 years? Or is that somehow too, too simple to blame it on that causality? Yeah. So, you know, to be fair, the 20 years have not been linear. Um, you know, right after 9-11, um, there was actually an infusion of funding into public health. And a lot of the degradation of public health capacity actually happened before that. Um, and if you look at, you know, strapped cities and state governments, what you saw are, you know, people diverting funds from public health to what a colleague of mine used to call the S's, you know, safety, schools, streets, you know, and and in, in, you know, in a lot of major cities, that was where the money went um, from certainly local and even state-based coffers. And there was a real depletion of resources at local and state public health. And after 9-11, um, you know, there was, I think, a recognition, particularly after the anthrax outbreaks, but even, even in the whole integration of biological terrorism um, preparedness into disaster preparedness overall, that, you know, people recognized that public health needed funding. And there were a fair amount of federal that, you know, in some respects made up, you know, helped, helped offset some of the depletion of funding that had occurred at the local and state level. And I think for a while that was sustained. I think in the last five to 10 years, those funds have, have diminished. And you've seen, you know, people, you know, losing staff, you know, significant, I think maybe 25, I think I read a statistic like 
health department staffs are down by at least 25% just in the last, you know, five to 10 years. And so you had a, an initial infusion of funding and now I think a depletion of resources. And similarly, in the last five to 10 years, a lot of the preparedness funds that went to healthcare and hospital systems, um, which were never enough in the first place, have cut way back. And so you have you know, hospitals have always been just in time, you know, situate, you know, operations with very little, you know, capacity or reserve. And we're really going to see that um, become, you know, create problems, you know, now. So I, it's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, what, what used to strike me when I was involved in, you know, public health working in, you know, closely with police and fire during the days where I met you, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, my colleagues in police and fire were always shocked that my position and all of my colleagues were funded on grants, whereas they were funded on hard city dollars. And, right. you know, clearly reflected as municipal commitment to the service. And, you know, unfortunately, we've never really seen, I mean, there are some exceptions. New York City values its health department. Um, and they've always had a terrific health department, but in other locations, it's been much more of a struggle. Mm, okay. Um, uh, that that's helpful to me because my framing has been that maybe September 11 took departments in the wrong direction, but you're describing something that health departments were actually quite good at taking that boost in that moment and using it in the way they needed it. So it's been more of a depletion in a more recent time frame than I had than I, I think had so. conceptualized. Okay. That's, that's my perspective. Others may disagree, no, but I think after 9-11, you saw you know, a surge in funding and, and real capacity building, you know, along the lines of epidemiology and surveillance, lab capacity, uh, planning for emergencies and disasters, certainly around quote unquote medical countermeasures, but also risk communication. I think, and you know, there, I think there was real capacity building. You see, I mean, syndromic surveillance, you know, absolutely occurred, you know, after that. And I think that's something pretty much everybody can do these days. But honestly, the last five to 10 years, have become a huge problem because that that those federal funds that really became so important for maintaining critical public health services have really started to dry up and you've seen staff losses yet again. Let me get to another question here from SK McBride. She's asking uh, about stigma. Actually, this taps back into your experience with HIV. She says, do you think that there'll be social stigma rising from testing positive for COVID? Would this cause people to avoid being tested if it was offered? or perhaps because celebrities have gone public with their test results and we have this sort of culture now again on Twitter and social media of um, you know, people across wide sectors, celebrities saying, I got, I got tested and I'm, and I'm positive, that the stigma will be different somehow from HIV or Ebola. Help us think through the stigma issue a little bit. That's a great question. I, I actually don't know, honestly. Um, you know, some of the stuff that's coming out of our federal government now calling this the China virus is, is just ridiculous. Um, and I, I know that- I so angry a, when I hear that stuff. It's very hard for me to not run- uh, Same here, yeah. same here. And I think, I think of everyone, you know, the, the Asian community and how unfairly stigmatized they feel when, they, when that is, you know, viruses are stupid in the sense of they don't have tribal or national affiliations. I mean, they're quite smart. They're incredibly, you know, they, from a Darwinian perspective. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, we don't, we don't talk about, you know, H1N1 in 2009 emerged from Mexico. We never called that the Mexican influenza. And there's, I've, been, I've seen plenty of bad E. coli 0157H7 infections arise from California farms. And we don't, you know, it's just, I mean, that is just abhorrent. Um, you know, I think with a lot of diseases, there are stigma. There is stigma. Um, you know, and, and so 
I think it is possible there might be stigma. I think, I think the biggest challenge here is that it's so contagious and I think people are afraid of the virus. Um, but I think having said that, it is gonna be, you know, I think people are predicting that attack rates are, you know, are gonna be so high, certainly if we don't, you know, implement mitigation measures. I don't know if this is, if the stigma will be sustained because I think infection will become so common. And your point about celebrities going public with their infection does make a difference. You know, I, I have no idea. I have no right. idea. I think it's hard to, I, I, I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer that. Uh, well, thank you for, for addressing that question. I have a question here from Kim Fortune, who was a guest um, earlier this week. And she said, have you seen, gener this is an interesting question. Have you seen generational differences in the way public health practitioners have responded to this? that might point to changes in the way that public health education has changed. And I think what she really wants to know is, is what are we learning here for lessons for public health education going forward? Wow, that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I think this is really something that nothing, no one has ever dealt with before. You know what I mean? It's not like practitioners in their 60s and 70s can say, well, when I did such and such, because this is really the big one that we've all been worried about. But, you know, even, even the um, H1N1 pandemic of 2009 was nothing like this. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I have to, I have to give that some thought. Um, in terms of, you know, thinking about how something like this would inform public health education, um, you know, I think about the essential services of public health or the core capacities of preparedness. And, you know, I do a lot of teaching of that at Drexel, you know, mm -hmm. what those are and what those mean. And I usually have to, in my classes, you know, give examples of those that draw on um, historical events or um, events that could take place. And I think, you know, public health is so invisible. And, you know, even honestly within the public health, within schools of public health, I think there's a, a lack of understanding sometimes of what public health practice really is and what really goes on in, in the real world. And this is, this is a situation that is gonna um, shine a spotlight on every aspect of successful public health from everything from, you know, what, what surveillance, what disease surveillance is to what the, the critical role of the public health laboratory, the critical relationship between public health and the clinical community, risk communication planning. I think, I, you know, all the things that we teach um, are going to be illustrated every single day in the next year. It's been fascinating to me um, to talk with journalists, for example, who are, of course, eager to have historical analogies for this moment. And as a historian, I'm supposed to be able to supply those. Uh, and it's been hard, honestly. I mean, I can pick out certain pieces um, about public trust in science or, you know, Fukushima, I think, in some way, a cascading disaster. We can see certain analogies. Uh, but the 1918 pandemic analogy is, is, also, is not perfect. And in some ways, I feel like... Right. The preparations made for atomic attack come closest to where we are in asking Americans to shelter and, and wait um, as a government struggles to understand a big problem. And that's kind of what they were mod modeling in the Cold War. But I mean, what I'm saying is we don't have good historical analogies. We're grasping at those. And um, so that's going to be, uh, it, in many ways, as a historian, I feel very awkward saying that we're living through history because we're not always supposed to give the present so much power, but I think this truly is that kind of a situation. I, I would agree with you. I do think 1918 is the closest thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny because 
I w we would study 1918 as the paradigm for this sure. kind of event and think to ourselves, but it would never be that bad. No. <laughs> or, we, you know, or the medical capacity we have now would be so much more sophisticated. It's not clear to me that it really is. No. Well, they had a major disadvantage then, which is they, the government was suppressing uh, information and could get away with that. But they had an advantage not. that they were in the middle of a war. And so there was a sense of national responsibility and coming together. And I've been very worried that I haven't seen that sort of um, pulling tight of the American social fabric. I want to, we have a few minutes left. I want to get to two questions I think I can wrap together. One is Connie McGuire asking about this as what she calls a trigger event that could lead to opportunities for real systemic change in the health system. And I want to tie that to a question or an invocation from our colleague, Michael Udell, who said, great conversation, but please give the people some hope. Um, <laughs> so what can we, give us some, give us some hope here. So um, I actually do agree that this is an opportunity uh, for two, in two ways. I think, you know, this is an epidemic that will absolutely expose the flaws in our healthcare system in terms of our just-in-time hospitals and um, limited capacity. But in terms of just, you know, the hodgepodge that is our health insurance system and health coverage, and I think this is an opportunity um, for people to really understand what it means to have, you know, gaps in coverage, not to have coverage, and how that limits access to care. Um, so, you know, there's lots of ways to get to universal health care, um, but I think this is potentially an opportunity that's going to focus a lot, you know, fo you know, focus some, uh, some attention on that. I mean, we talk about it now with respect to access to testing and waiving fees for testing and this and that, but it'll be more than that. It'll be waiving fees for the extraordinary care that has to be implemented for many patients and, you know, avoiding catastrophic, you know, um, you know, costs and all of that. So I think, I think there is an opportunity for, for us to think about the healthcare system in ways that most people just don't think about because no one's had to, well never no one's had to pay attention to it in the way people are paying attention to it now. Right. And I think by the same token that's true for the public health system. I think, you know, we're seeing public health in action every day. And I think that's um, you know a uh, an important you know lesson um, and, and hopefully something that you know the future governments at local and state and federal levels will value in terms of thinking about investments in the future. And in terms of, you know, hope and all that, you know, I, I'm really encouraged actually by the uh, data that comes from China, by the data that's come from a lot of these Asian, Asian countries that have responded successfully to this epidemic, and, and the mathematical modeling studies which, which show that this is containable. It really is. I mean, if it's it's not without pain, no question about that. Um, right. But the you know these layered strategies of you know you know case containment, contact tracing and identification, and quarantine of those folks, and and these social distancing measures, they work. They worked in China. I think uh, the, in Wuhan they maybe reported one case yesterday, maybe zero cases. I mean, that's a milestone. Okay. Um, and, you know, South Korea has contained it. Japan seems to have contained it. I'm not sure what's going on there. Full disclosure, one of my sons is there. I'm paying careful attention to what's going on in that country. Um, but these things work. And, you know, the, the scary uh, manuscript that has came out of London in the last week that seems to have finally woken up our federal government mm -hmm. yeah. does suggest that with rigorous containment activities, um, 
it works. I mean, rigorous social distancing, you know, rigorous containment uh, strategies, they are successful in curbing transmission. And, and that's hugely encouraging. I think the other thing that's remarkable is the pace of the science is just amazing in terms of, and we have candidate vaccines now in phase one trials, um, which is phenomenal. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot of molecular biology and molecular epidemiology that is being leveraged in the service of this, of, of containing this outbreak and information sharing that I've never seen before, um, that I think is gonna, is gonna move us further along in terms of our response capacity. Um, we'll have to see what happens. I can't predict the future, but I think all of those things are encouraging. Thank you for that. I'm going to give you just one last little thing. We were wrapping up here. Uh, so, you know, with my COVID call, I called you. Um, so if I gave you one call right now, who would you call to get a better sense of this, of this disaster? Who do you want to talk to? Or are you already in touch with everyone that you need to talk to about, <laughs> about, what's, about what's coming next? Well, you know, there's a handful of people I'm following on Twitter and social media who um, have insights every day that I, I find extremely valuable. I might call one of those folks, and who okay. are they? Um, Bruce Allwart, the WHO um, lead who wrote, who right. co-wrote the report, I think, with the China WHO mission report, which I think was incredibly instructive. And he has a lot of, you know, there were articles written by, you know, about him in Vox that I think gave some really interesting insights into what was successful in China. Um, Andy Slavitt. Um, former CMS director under Obama has great insights into uh, the successes of the Obama administration in terms of public health and healthcare measures and, and what could be useful here. Um, there are a lot of um, a lot of the folks in Washington who are on the ground at University of Washington and Seattle King County. Um, you know, I'd love to call them and say, what are you seeing? What are you doing? What's working? Right. What are the challenges? Um, okay. Because they're in the middle of it now. Um, in ways that thankfully Philadelphia isn't, but maybe in a few weeks, I don't know. So those are some of the calls I would make. Tony Fauci, always. Carlos Del Rio is another right. ID doc I follow. Okay, well, like we said earlier, I'm going to get that list from you and make it available to everyone. I just want to remind everyone that um, tomorrow, five o'clock Eastern time, we have Dr. Sam Montano and we have Patrick Roberts, and we're going to be talking about um, FEMA, emergency management, federal response, the politics of disaster management, and the role that FEMA may be about to play as this disaster is unfolding. Uh, Esther Schoenack, I'm, uh, I'm just really glad that you're my colleague, and, and this <laughs> was such a brilliant um, uh, sharing of your knowledge. I want to thank you so much for your time today and for everything you're doing for the city of Philadelphia and all of us. So good luck to you, thank and I you. hope we can get you back maybe at some point in the next few weeks. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate okay. it. Okay. Thanks, everybody. The recording will be up soon. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 p.m.